Where we are right now is we just finished Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tree. And God willing, tonight, I hope to get through chapters 5 and 6. I showed you this chiastic structure in Daniel last time, I believe. And I just throw it back up so that everybody knows where we are. And the structure of the first half of Daniel, which is mostly written in Chaldean, is chapter 1 and the end are bookends, but then in the middle you have chapter 2 is bookended by chapter 7, and then chapter 3 is bookended by chapter 6, and then 4 and 5 are together. So we did 4, we'll do 5, and that's Belshazzar, and then probably Daniel and the lion's den. In chapter 5, Daniel, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Okay, who's Belshazzar? I have looked this up on the internet in several places. There's always some confusion about kings this far back because of calendar differences and those kinds of things. But it appears that Nebuchadnezzar reigned from about 604 to 568 B.C. So he reigned for 36 years. He was followed by Evil Merodach, and I don't know whether evil is a title or part of a name. They have one king that always just cracked me up. Shalmaneser, I believe it is. I don't remember what translation you read, but it translates his name phonetically. He's called Osnapper. That just always tickled me. So I don't know what Evil Merodach is, other than he was one of the emperor, and he was only there for a year. And I haven't looked up the history of these guys, so I'm not sure who killed whom. So then you've got Labosorakid, and he didn't last very long at all, one year. And then you have Nabonidus, and Nabonidus lasted uh, from 555 B.C. to 539 B.C. So he lasted 16 years, and he left most of the administration and the daily running of his stuff to his son, Belshazzar. So Belshazzar only reigned in 539, and that's what we're going to read about today. But he wasn't actually the king. He was more like a regent because dad was off doing stuff and dad was the king. But if you count generation Nebuchadnezzar, then two, Evil Mordach, three, Nereglisser, four, five. So we've got five generations from Nebuchadnezzar. The reason that becomes confusing is it talks about your father, Nebuchadnezzar, in the, in the scripture. But Nebuchadnezzar is not his father. He's his great-great-great-grandfather. Now, Daniel is obviously still alive. So 539 B.C. to 625 B.C., so 39 from 100 is 61, plus 25 is 86. So it's 86 years since the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign when we have Belshazzar's feast. And when Daniel starts, he is not an infant. Daniel is at least a teenager when he's taken off to Babylon at the fall of Jerusalem. So he was born in Israel. He gets taken away as a hostage when Nebuchadnezzar takes the place. And Nebuchadnezzar assumes his rule in 625 B.C. And at that point, Daniel is some age. So he's old enough to be schooled. He's old enough to be in the king's court. He's certainly old enough to be eligible for execution when nobody can figure out 
the dream. So I'm inferring from that, and this is just an inference, there's, there's no biblical evidence, that he's probably a teenager. And so now, from the time he was a teenager, we are now 86 years later. It's very likely that he may be over 100 years old at this point. And he continues to serve in the succeeding administration. So, at least according to this chronology that I have in front of me on the internet, he's an old guy. And oh, by the way, one of the things that's going to happen is Belshazzar's mother is going to refer Belshazzar to Daniel. And it's fairly natural that nobody in that court would know Daniel. Because Daniel is an old man and is probably mostly retired. All the way to verse 2. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So, got a big feast going on and he wants to show off. And of course, the whole purpose of this rigmarole we just went through with dates is Nebuchadnezzar is not his biological father. Nebuchadnezzar is about five generations, five kings back from there. And obviously what he's doing, this is very much reminiscent of Esther. He's throwing a big party. He's got all of his nobles in there, all of the officials of the empire and so forth. And what he's going to do now is he is going to aggrandize himself by showing the empire that I am running has conquered this other god's people and we have looted this other god's temple and we have all of the temple serving vessels of this other god and I am going to show just how mighty and powerful we are because I'm going to use them for a drunken party. That's sort of the attitude that's going on here. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So the deal here is we are using the vessels and the temple accoutrements of this other god who we have conquered and we are praising our gods because our gods are stronger than their god. And our gods are so much stronger than their god that we are going to take their sacred vessels and we're going to use them for drinking toast to our own god. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Remember, one of the things that we've said a lot of times is all of these ancient cultures had people on their staffs whose job it was to connect with the supernatural. You know, they would uh, tell omens, they would tell dreams, they would cast whatever kind of... uh, runes they had to tell fortunes, you know, all that kind of stuff. There were people on everybody's staff in that time that did this stuff. So the idea that Belshazzar recognizes that 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, is in fact a God, is not a problem. What he is doing, though, is he is saying, and it was common in that place at that time, when you went to war, it was my gods against your gods, and whoever wins, the god is stronger. So he says, okay, we won, our god is stronger, but that doesn't mean that their god is not a god. It simply means that our gods are more powerful. So when he gets to supernatural manifestation, as he is disrespecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's like, oh, shoot, maybe he's not as powerless as we thought he was. And the other part of that is, it was believed that gods were territorial. So that's the God of the Hebrews. And the God of the Hebrews' territory is the land of the Hebrews. We're not in that land anymore. We've looted him, we've taken all this stuff, and we've brought it here, and this is the land of our gods. It is not the land of their gods. So when the handwriting appears on the wall, it's like, oh, shoot, what have I just done? And that's pretty much his reaction. Verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. In other words, I am really spooked and I need to know what this says because I suspect that it's not good for me. Verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because of an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now again, we made a point of this last time. Notice that she is calling him Daniel. The same thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Once Daniel proved his connection to God, Belteshazzar sort of became like a title that we need to use every now and then to make sure he gets his mail. But everybody calls him by his Hebrew name. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, 
You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. So all of this is formulaic at this point. Daniel now breaks the formula. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. In other words, up yours, O king. This is really insulting. This is contempt. And Daniel is making it really obvious that he has little or no respect for this kid. Furthermore, he's an old man. He has been second ruler of the Babylonian Empire for a long time. He is probably very well and very comfortably set, has no aspirations or ambitions anymore because he's proved everything. And so this little squirt tells him, tell me the interpretation and I'll give you a third of the kingdom. Eh, not interesting to him. And as I say, I don't think he has a lot of respect for this kid. Probably changed his diaper at some point. Let me start again. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known the interpretation. In other words, there's nothing you got that I want, O king, but I'll go ahead and do it for you. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heavens until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So what he's saying is, hey, squirt, you knew what happened to your great-grandfather when he got too big for his britches. You know the history of the court. You understand that that God is able to humble the king of Babylon anytime he wants to. You knew all that. Yet, what you have done here is you have insulted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though you knew better. So 22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Big mistake in your choice of gods here, O king. And I will suggest, had he continued to worship the idols without messing with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would have been just fine. So, for example, we just read about the cleansing of Naaman, Syrian leper, on a Shabbat, you know, where he comes in and gets cleansed of leprosy by Elijah. And he goes back and he says, all right, I now know that Jehovah is God. But I'm going to have to continue to worship the God of the 
Syrian king because I am his chief of staff. So I asked that I would be forgiven for that because I've got to do it as part of my duties. And as far as I know, this didn't bother God much at all. So the idea of Belshazzar being a pagan is not the problem. It's his arrogant attitude and his open contempt of Jehovah that has caused this to happen. 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that is inscribed. Mene, mene, tickle, farson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third rule in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Sort of the backstory of all this, this big feast that is being held is being held while the Medes and the Persians are besieging the city of Babylon. And it was widely thought that Babylon was impregnable. I don't remember how far it is on a side, but it's huge, and it spans the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River runs right through the middle of town. And it was thought to be impregnable because it has an unlimited water supply. They had plenty of food brought into the gates, and the walls were high and impregnable. You could race chariots around the tops of the walls. Very impregnable place. And what the Medes did is upstream in the Euphrates, they dug a diversion canal. And they diverted the water of the Euphrates around the city, dried up the river, walked up the riverbed and into town and took the place over. So this feast that is taking place is taking place as a show of invulnerability. We're sitting in our impregnable city here and I have got all of my governing ministers with me. We're going to throw a magnificent feast. We're going to show that our gods are more powerful than anybody else's gods, and we're just going to sit here until the Medes and the Persians get tired and go home. And that very night, they diverted the river, and the Mede and Persian army came up the riverbed and take the place over, and of course he was killed. So Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one and to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. So one of the things that's obvious here, you know, Darius has come in and he's conquered the place, he's running it and he immediately picks up on Daniel that Daniel is a righteous guy. Not only that, he's competent. And the other part of that, by the way, is when you take over some place like that, keeping a certain amount of the bureaucracy in place makes things run better. And one of the things about bureaucrats is they are often just loyal to their bureau. My job is tax collecting. My job is regulating highways. And the fact that the king has just changed hasn't changed my job at all. I'm still collecting taxes and I'm still regulating the highways. So the idea then of 
hanging on to some of the bureaucrats who know everybody, know the merchants, know where everything is, all that kind of stuff makes sense. And as I say, Daniel is a righteous man, and I'm also very sure that God probably had a hand in some of this. Verse 3, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel, like cream, continues to rise to the top. Then the presidents, the satraps, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel is very, very good at what he does. Rises to the top again, and Darius notices that not only is Daniel competent, he's better than the other two guys that I had, and he intended to make him number one. And jealousy arose, just like it did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fact that Daniel has saved countless people's bacon doesn't ever seem to count for much. Part of it is anti-Semitism, part of it is just good old jealousy for power, which, by the way, is often the source of anti-Semitism. Verse 6, Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. A couple of things about this. One of the things that you're all familiar with is it was a very common thing, again, at that time and in that region to deify kings. Pharaoh was a deity, Caesar was a deity, and Caesar is later than this. So the idea that the king is worshipped, or the state is worshipped, is perhaps a better way to say it, is something that is fairly common. So the idea that they should say, okay, O king, you're the new king here, what we need to do is we need to establish you in your kingship, and we need to make sure everybody understands that you're the king, so we're going to set an edict, saying for 30 days, you're the only God that is allowed to be worshipped, and that will cement your position among the people. I'm sort of obviously freely translating here. Now, the first thing that should have grabbed the king's attention is Daniel was not in this pack of people. Remember, Daniel is one of the three top guys, and Daniel is the guy that is going to be made numero uno. So for all of these people to come in with this recommendation and Daniel not to be there should have been ding, 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 ding. What's going on here? King doesn't get that, but you understand what I'm saying. They were appealing to his vanity and buttered him up on both sides. And that may have been the reason that his antenna didn't go up, but it should have. Verse 8, now, O king, Establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Again, the idea is once a king makes a proclamation, you can't back off of it. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. 
He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel is not doing anything extraordinary. He's not waltzing through the town square saying, a pox on your God, O king. He's just continuing to do what he has always done. Verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. In other words, you bet I did. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now notice how they describe Daniel. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, not Daniel, your second in command. It's this guy is a foreigner, and this foreigner doesn't pay any attention to your gods or to your edicts. So therefore, even though he is a really capable administrator, you can't trust him. 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, realizing he has been mousetrapped. So then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. All right, so what he's doing when he's laboring all night, what he is trying to do is find a loophole in the law. So he's in the law library trying to find some reason why this can be rescinded, and he is unable to do so. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So he is ticked, at least. He may also be frightened. That's a little harder to discern, but given that he knows what happened with Belshazzar, there may be this empty place in the pit of his stomach where he says, oh shoot, what have I done now? In addition to which he is really upset that he's been mousetrapped. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. (laughs) My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Like I say, the king is ticked. And 
This is sort of the same thing that happened to the guys that tried to nail Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you try and take out the boss, you better make sure you succeed. Because if you don't succeed, payback is really going to be difficult. 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So long life. This is sort of the end, if you will, of the historical part of the book of Daniel. And one of the things about these books of exile, and I've said this before, is we have case studies of four different temperaments in exile. The first one we had was Joseph, and he in exile rose to second in command of Egypt, and his behavior was a certain way. We have here Daniel, who also rises to second in command of the empire. His behavior is somewhat different. We have Mordecai, who rises to second in command of the Persian Empire, and his is again somewhat different. We have Moses. Moses was to be leader of Israel. You have Joseph, who was of the tribe of Joseph. You have a Levite, who was Moses. You have a Benjaminite, who is Mordecai. And you have a Jew, who is Daniel. So you have four different tribes represented as they deal with foreign powers and and their approach is different according to the temperament of their tribe. And if you go back to when Jacob blessed his sons and when Moses blessed the 12 tribes, you can see the temperament of each one of those four and you can see that temperament reflected in how they behave in empire. Joseph is a very, very capable administrator. But he doesn't have a lot of grit. He doesn't confront anybody. In fact, when it comes time for him to have his father buried, he doesn't even personally ask Pharaoh if he can go bury his father. He goes to somebody else in the court and says, would you go ask Pharaoh for me? So no confrontation. Very able administrator, very righteous man. I'm not knocking Joseph in any way. I'm simply explaining his temperament. The next guy up is, of course, Moses. And Moses is a Levite. And if you remember, the Levites were the ones that took out Shechem and the ones that took out their brethren in the thing of the golden calf. Levites are hot-headed. And so Moses is the guy that you need when you want to break out of exile, because he'll go head to head with Pharaoh. And he has got the temper and the temperament not to take any guff from anybody. Judah, who we're reading about now, which is Daniel, also a very, very capable administrator. But he's also able to stand up for himself. 
So he doesn't have any problem looking the king in the face and say, keep your junk, O king. I don't want any of it. I don't have any respect for you. I'll do what you want me to do, but you're nothing to me. Every bit as capable an administrator as Joseph is, but more sand, more grit. Then you get to Benjamin, who is Mordecai. And Mordecai is lethal because Mordecai and Esther engineer the destruction of Haman, who was at that time the second in command of the Persian Empire. And Haman never even sees it coming. We just read that all of the underlings in the Median Persian Empire tried to take out Daniel and couldn't get the job done. Mordecai is able to take out Haman. And Haman never even sees it coming until the king says, off with his head, or hang him. And furthermore, Mordecai spooks the king because the king suddenly recognizes that he's dealing with somebody here in Esther, who's his wife, and Mordecai, who's her cousin. And this combination is deadly, and he doesn't mess with them. And Mordecai arranges it so that Jews are safe in the Persian Empire for about the next 600 years. Nobody messes with them. So you've got four men dealing with the empires of the world in exile, and each one of those four approaches the problem differently. And you can see in their approach all the way back to the blessing that Jacob gave to his son. Because remember, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. Isn't that what they say about Benjamin? And Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. He takes out the number two in the Persian Empire and takes over his place and runs the place without missing a beat. Judah is of kingly material. And Daniel here is able to stand up and look the king right in the eye and say, no, I don't want any of your stuff. Perfectly regal in himself and perfectly self-contained. You say, Moses, Levite is the guy you want when you need to break out of exile because he'll go head to head with the king and not take anything. And then when you got Joseph, if you're going to be in exile for a long time and you want to make your exile really bearable, you want Joseph in charge because Joseph will take care of his people. He will run the empire efficiently but he's not the guy to get you home. That's not saying anything against any of those men. I mean, each one of them is a spiritual giant and a great man in his own right, but their temperaments are very different, and God has put them in different places according to their temperament. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.